and we're going to, after looking for a few minutes at Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, so you might want to get a preliminary look at Ezekiel 36. Father, as we come to your word, we do ask for your blessing. We recognize that that uh, your scriptures are sufficient. With, with your word, we have all the knowledge we need to live godly and faithfully. With your spirit, we have all the power necessary to transform us. We thank you that your word is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible that you have preserved it in, in such an incredibly marvelous way through uh, 2,000 years and more. And so as we, as we open the pages of Scripture, Lord, help us to humble our hearts, to bow our, our wills before yours, to bow our hearts and our minds, to hear you speak to us and feed us and encourage us this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We've, we've been working our way through Hebrews. We're, we're in chapter 8 now. Um, we, we've had something in the realm of 30 messages to this point. And I'm going to approach Hebrews 8 a little bit different. A lot of what Hebrews 8 has to say is kind of summary information of what we've already seen before about the sufficiency of Christ, about the failure of, of the old covenant system and the weaknesses of the old covenant system. And so I'm, go- I'm not going to dive into those things as deeply. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to focus on, on three verses toward the end of the chapter that deal with the new covenant. Um, we, we've been talking for, for many weeks now about the failures within the old covenant, and this morning we're going to try and get a, a good foundation of the new covenant, of what it is. So our text says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, that is a high priest who is eternal, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, chapter 7 says, Jesus Christ, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, see that you make all the things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The quotation that, that we see in verses 10 through 12 is, is from Jeremiah chapter 31. We see the old covenant, or the, the new covenant rather, given twice in the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36. The, the words of Jeremiah the prophet are really words of judgment. Jeremiah becomes a prophet in the last couple of decades of the kingdom period. Uh, the kingdom had begun around 1100 BC with uh, King Saul. Saul lost the kingdom because of his sin. David became king and then Solomon. Because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Because of idolatry within those two kingdoms, both of them suffered captivity in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah is writing in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom has already been captured when Jeremiah is writing. Now he's writing for the sake of the southern kingdom. And we can see even from these words here, God speaks in the third person. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. He's speaking to that generation, but the promise is not for that generation. God has already determined that they're going to suffer the consequences of their sin. And the vast majority of them died. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them died at the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, quite a few young people were captured and taken to, uh, taken to Babylon. Daniel was, was one of those. By the way, Justin, starting on Sunday, Justin's going to be uh, starting a, 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 a Sunday school class in Daniel. This coming Sunday or the Sunday? This coming Sunday. No. Oh, that's two weeks. So next, next Sunday, there's no Sunday school. You're starting Daniel the, the following. Um, and Daniel chapter 1 talks about Daniel and, and three specific men with him, young men being captured and raised, and the book of Daniel is about that, being raised within the Chaldean culture, within their language. But the words of Jeremiah are all, are all words of judgment. It's a, it's a sad book. It's a very gloomy book. The nation's idolatry and sin had reached its peak. God was determined to judge them, and he did. He gives them the new covenant not as a way of saying, I'm giving you one last chance. Really, although I suppose that was there, it's really making the, the point to Israel, with your destruction temporarily, there is also coming a, a, a reconciliation. There's coming a restitution. Uh, Ezekiel, on the other hand, writes a generation later, and Ezekiel is filled with words of hope. There's the reality of Israel's sin, but Ezekiel is really a, a very hopeful book, an odd book in a lot of ways, but a very hopeful book. 
There are a lot of differences between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but they had at least one common element, and that is that they both convey the New Testament. There's a much fuller version of, uh, not the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is kind of the New Testament. Um, Ezekiel contains a much fuller, richer picture of, of the New Covenant, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if, if you're not in, in Ezekiel, I invite you Ezekiel, I invite you to go there. Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, you get past Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Gotta get Jeremiah by Jeremiah. It's a long one. Lamentations is short, then Ezekiel, and then 36. I'm recording this so the people listening on the radio have to be able to follow. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 22, and I'm going to read through verse 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So we, we see this statement that God is going to work for his own glory. It is not for the sake of Israel. It is for the sake of his name. Israel was given the law, they were given the old covenant, they were given the commands and the priesthood in order that they might uh, bring glory to the name of God, but the truth is they brought the opposite. They, they profaned the name of God. They brought mockery to the Lord. And what he says here that he is going to act for his sake, he's going to vindicate his holiness, he's going to vindicate his name is a key to understanding the nature of the New Testament or the, the New Covenant. A, a covenant is what it is because of the, the terms of the covenant. A covenant isn't what it is because of the results of the covenant. It's because of the, the contract. It's because of the agreement that exists. The old covenant was a covenant where God said, if you will do this, then I will do this. And the whole thing from beginning to end has that sense. God says, if you, then I. And the people violated that covenant from the very, very beginning. In fact, Moses is still up on the mountain receiving the, the, the full revelation of the law when the people are down on the ground at the foot of the mountain demanding that Aaron make them a calf to worship, a golden calf. And so before the law was ever fully given, the people had already begun to violate it, and they would continue to violate it. The old covenant is, if you do this, I will do my part. And the people were the problem. The people were the problem. It wasn't the covenant that was the problem. Now, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, it says that the former commandment, the law, was weak and useless because it could make no one perfect. But what we see in Hebrews, Hebrews 8 clarifies that. It says in verses 7 and 8, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And then he says in verse 8, For finding fault with them. God doesn't look at the failure of the old covenant and say the problem was the covenant. 
God looks at the old covenant and says the problem was the people. The people did not keep it. And, and that's because it depended on sinners. The old covenant depended on sinners. God said to people who were wicked, who were fallen, who were dead in their sins, who were unreliable, if you will keep this, I will do my part. And none of them kept it. None of them kept it. What was needed was a, a new covenant where the terms were different. Where God didn't say to human beings, if you will, then I will. What was needed was a new covenant that didn't depend on sinful, frail human beings for its fulfillment. So we have the new covenant, and the new covenant depends on Christ. The old covenant is an agreement between God and Israel. The new covenant is an agreement between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus was born as a sinless human being. God made flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life. He obeyed the law in all of its details. He died as the perfect flawless sacrifice for sin. He was buried and he was raised in glory on the third day. Jesus utterly fulfilled the terms of the new covenant. And then, and then the new covenant is sealed. It's, it's done. It's accomplished. There was never a point where the old covenant was accomplished. The new covenant is accomplished. Christians receive the benefits and the blessings of the new covenant because Jesus has fulfilled the new covenant. One of the most common phrases we see describing Christians in the New Testament isn't the word Christian. It's not the word disciple. It's the phrase in Christ. We are those who are in Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you want all the blessings of the new covenant, you don't keep the new covenant. You believe in Jesus Christ. He's kept the new covenant for us because we could never have kept it. So let, let's talk about the, the new covenant itself. There, there are four aspects of the new covenant that we see in Ezekiel. The first aspect is that the new covenant promises home. He says in verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. What we want is a home. That's, that's, that's what we want is a home. Um, we want a place to belong. We want a place that's ours. We don't just want a, a, a possession. We, we want a place where we fit. Um, Nebraska is a different place for us. Coming from California, I'm living in my sixth home, and Linda's living in her seventh home. We know people in Nebraska who are living in ancestral homes, in ancestral lands. We don't, we don't talk that way. That's European kind of talk, living in the ancestral lands, but that's what some of you guys do. But for, for Linda and I, we've had numerous homes. Here's the thing. The houses we lived in still exist, but the homes no longer exist. I, I can close my eyes right now and imagine the house I grew up in, in Los Alamitos, California, I can imagine both of the doors going in the front, divided by a block wall. The kitchen was to the left. Go forward. My mom and dad's bedroom was straight in front. There's a hallway that went to the left and a bathroom and a bedroom and another bedroom that was mainly my bedroom as I grew up. 
If you go back to that front door, um, to the right was a hallway, and then on the other side of the hallway, the dining room, and then a door out into the patio area, and then a living room. We had a big, long living room that was divided with furniture, so we had kind of our TV room and then kind of the formal living room. I, I can see it. I could walk in that, that house blindfolded as long as it was empty. I don't know where they have furniture. And, and just go anywhere that I, that I needed to go. In fact, I remember that when I was growing up, that hallway that went back to the bedrooms had this wallpaper that was, I think it was gold foil and blue velour kind of stuff on it, kind of in curly Q patterns. And I remember having the flu and having a really high fever and walking out in the hallway and all those things were moving. They were all crawling. It just freaked me out, utterly creeped me out. We're not going to have a home until we arrive in heaven. Even the home we're living in now is subject to change. We're going to have a home when we arrive in heaven. That, that's the goal. The new covenant is ultimately about coming home. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Israel was promised acreage. That, that's why I stopped reading at verse 27. At verse 28, it kind of goes into the acreage that this immediate generation would receive. We don't get acreage. We get heaven. We get the presence of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, we're told that our family there in that home are people taken from, as God says, taken from the nations, from every uh, tongue, tribe, nation, and kindred from around the world. We're going to have family from there. The new covenant promises holiness. Verse 25, God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. We've seen in Hebrews uh, already leading up to chapter 8 that the rites and the rituals of the old covenant are weak and useless because they can't perfect anyone. The same thing is true of baptism and the Lord's Supper for us today. They're weak and useless. They're, they're celebrations of what has been done for us, but they don't have any power to change us. They don't have any power to, to transform us into something else. The, the true cleansing is not found in, in uh, circumcision or the sacrifices of the Old Covenant or in baptism or the Lord's table under the New Covenant. True cleansing, true purification is found in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, there is the promise of a clean conscience. Our sins are forgiven. We are washed clean. He, uh, he, he takes away all of our sins. He forgives them. He throws them into the depths of the sea so that they're remembered no more. Now, it's absolutely true that right now uh, we, we are living kind of in an amphibian way. On the one hand, we're partly in heaven, and we know that we're forgiven. We have that, that assurance in Scripture. And at the same time, we're living on earth, and we're aware of our guilt. We're aware of our sin. And what we know from Scripture is that our forgiveness is not theoretical, and it's not poetic imagery. What we know from Scripture is that our forgiveness is real and actual and concrete, and we also know that we continue to have contaminated consciences. When we arrive home, when the Lord brings us home, then we will not only be clean, we will feel clean. And we will think clean. Our hearts will be clean. Our consciences will be clean. The day is coming 
when we will experience being as clean as he has made us in Jesus Christ. But don't make any mistake, the forgiveness we have now is not theoretical, it's actual. We have actually been forgiven. We are actually made holy in Christ. The new covenant promises regeneration. He says in verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, why did the old covenant fail? The problem was with the people. We've seen that. It's, it's presented all the way through. The law, Romans says, Romans 7, the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is the people. God didn't find fault with the covenant. God found fault with the people who were part of the covenant. The people of Israel were unable to keep the law. We are unable to keep the laws. Let, let me just kind of pause here for a second and, and say that most human religion institutes some kind of old covenant uh, agreement. Whether it's Roman Catholicism, whether it's some forms of Lutheranism or Mormonism, whether it's a lot of, way, a lot of forms of Baptist theology or Methodist, it doesn't really matter. As soon as we begin saying, I need to do such and such so that God will do such and such, we've gone back to the old covenant way of thinking. God didn't replace the old covenant with another form of the old covenant. God didn't replace the old covenant, which was, if you will, then I will, with another form of, if you will, then I will, because we can't. He replaced it with something where Jesus has fulfilled it. And then within the new covenant, he promises us regeneration. He causes us to be born again, to be regenerated. He causes us to be converted. He doesn't fix our old, dead, busted, sinful natures. He crucifies them with Jesus, and he buries them in the grave, and then he raises them with Christ in new life. Through Christ, he gives us a new heart. He, through Christ, he gives us a new spirit. Through Christ, he removes the old, dead, uh, cold, unresponsive heart of stone from our flesh and gives us a heart of flesh. The heart of flesh is not a heart of sinful flesh, but a heart that is warm and responsive, uh, active toward the Lord in affection and love. And so in, in the instant we believe, and I don't know when you believe, maybe you were a child and you don't remember I was 17, I clearly remember, but in that instant you became a new creature and you received a new nature, new desires, new appetites, new longings. Now, we've got the old flesh. We've got that old sin nature creeping around with us. And now Romans 7 we're caught, says we're, we're caught in a battle. We're caught in this, this constant struggle where we are pestered by the old appetites. We're pestered by the old desires. And this this battle rages fiercely within us. It's one of the reasons that we, we must be gentle, forgiving, tolerant, patient with one another. We are all facing this battle. Our ultimate hope is not in our victory, but in what God has already done and has promised to fulfill in the Lord Jesus Christ. But truly, under the old covenant, God made a contract with dead, sinful people and under the new covenant, he's made the contract with his son and it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And because it's been fulfilled in Jesus, we now have rebirth. We now have the benefits of what would have been true under the old covenant. 
by virtue of what Jesus has done for us. And fourth, the, the new covenant promises sanctification. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's interesting, this is the first time in the new covenant where we have something that we do. And it's literally the last statement that's made. After we have been taken from the nations, gathered from the lands, brought into the lands, sprinkled clean, made clean, cleansed from filthiness and idolatry, given a new heart, given a new spirit, given a heart of flesh, and having the spirit of God put within us to cause us to walk in his statutes. Finally, there is something that we do. But it's not to fulfill the new covenant because it's already fulfilled. It's the result of the new covenant. And that is we will be careful to observe his ordinances. Again, the problem with the old covenant was that it was an if you will, then I will kind of agreement. In, in Deuteronomy, the second time the law was given to the generation that grew up in the wilderness, before they entered the promised land, there was a restatement of the law to them. And then after that restatement was done, then God said, uh, or Moses said, but speaking for the Lord, um, if you obey, this is, the con this is the result. If you disobey, this is the result. And this is what Moses says beginning the, when, as he begins the verses that have to do with the blessing for obedience. He says, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. That's the old covenant. Now, there's nothing deceptive about this. The promise was true. The promise simply could not be received by them because they didn't diligently obey. They, they were not careful to obey. I heard an apologist one time witnessing to a Mormon. He was recording it. He'd gone to a, an event in Arizona. There's a large Mormon temple, I think, in Tempe, Arizona. And the, and the, the apologist, the, the evangelist had said, what do you need to do in order to be saved? And the, the Mormon said, I just need to do the best I can. And the evangelist says, you've already failed. And the Mormon said, what do you mean? And the evangelist says, check your conscience. You've already failed to do the best you can. You've already failed to do everything you can do. You mean there, there wasn't one night when you knew you should have been out knocking on doors, but you decided to stay home and watch TV? You've already failed. Whether, whether we're dealing with a Mormon or a Baptist or a Roman Catholic or an atheist, the, the whole law of you do your best and God will has already failed. And our own consciences tell us that. We have hope for them. The new covenant changes all of this. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we are born again. God puts his spirit within you and he causes us to walk in his statutes. He causes us to pursue holiness and God-honoring obedience. The Spirit doesn't cause us to walk in uh, the, the statutes of God so that we can earn salvation, but because it's been given to us. 
because we've been born again. We've already been saved. We have this new life now that is beginning to come to us. Our faithful obedience is not what brings life to us. It's the result of life coming to us in Christ. That's why Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Spirit of God does this marvelous, wonderful work within us. He changes our desires so that we want to do what God has commanded us to do. Romans 7 says we're not always going to do that. We're going to be aware of this battle. But, but Philippians 2 tells us God gives us that desire to begin with. Unbelievers don't have a battle. Unbelievers aren't wrestling with two different natures. They only have one nature. It's dead to God. Christians are the ones who have this battle. And then because of the Holy Spirit, we are actually able to live for his good pleasure. When we submit ourselves to the word of God and to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we are able to actually live a different kind of life. We don't perfectly, but we're not earning anything. We've been given it. So let's review this. What does the new covenant bring us? It brings us reconciliation with God. It, it, it brings us home. It brings us a place. Linda and I have had the, the privilege of, uh, of going to some different places around the world, uh, all of those in, in a ministry context of one sort or another. We've met Christians in South Africa, in Malawi, in Zambia, in England, in Turkey, Linda did, and in China. And there's this really interesting thing that happens when we meet other people who are born again and who love the Lord Jesus. And that is that there's a connection. There's a bond with them. We've got this wall of Babel between us where God is confusing languages and we need to translate it. Two, two, a year and a half ago when Penny came home, a brother and sister in Christ in China escorted her home with, with some family members who didn't know the Lord, but this Brother and sister in Christ, and Saturday night, uh, we sat at our table. We'd had dinner. He'd, he'd barbecued, and uh, we had a great time not speaking English and Chinese. Um, and then we sat after dinner with our Bibles, and we just traded Bible verses. I don't know how long it went on, 30 minutes or an hour. It was an incredible time. And even though we didn't speak the same language, we have the same father. That's what being home does for us now, and ultimately... The new covenant brings us all the way home. The, the new covenant brings us true holiness. No one could be holy under the old covenant because it depended on them. And a, a sinner can't make himself holy by exercising his sin nature. Under the new covenant, we're given holiness. The holiness of Jesus Christ is granted to us as a gift. We are cleansed, forgiven. We are declared righteousness with the very righteousness of, of Christ. So when you come before the Lord in prayer... When you come to the Lord with, with a need, with a desire, with a concern, whatever it happens to be, you don't come as you. You don't come having to say, well, Lord, let's see, have I lived up to the standard? You come dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't see yourself that way. You don't experience yourself that way. I, I get that. I don't either. But when, when we bow our hearts and our heads before the Lord, and we enter into his presence in prayer, he sees his holy son. Just as though you'd lived that life. And so last Sunday, we prayed for little David James. 
And I prayed this, this really weird thing that I thought was kind of a reach for the sake of the kidnappers. Let them be caught. Let them not harm this child. Let the authorities work together. And, and the Lord answered that prayer. It's not just that they paid a ransom and got the baby back. And Uganda's a really corrupt place. We, we, uh, Dorothy Renter is on the board of, of the, the, the group that oversees this man's preaching ministry, Philip's preaching ministry in the, in the camps in Uganda. And they're African. And uh, she called on Wednesday just to get some counsel the, the day before, if you've ever seen the movie Machine Gun Preacher or heard that story of this, this guy who's a, who's a Christian evangelist who, who's kind of hard-nosed too. It's kind of like Chuck, Chuck Norris with a Bible, I guess. It's, a, it's actually a real person. I didn't know this. It's actually a real person. She got a hold of him, and he told her kidnappings are happen, happening constantly, 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 constantly. People are so poor, kidnappings are just common. It's probably somebody that at least is aware of the family or knows the family. It could even be the pastor. She didn't think so. And he said, don't pay any ransom. They just keep going. So it's a really, really dark place. But the, and, and he told her, the government's corrupt. The authorities are corrupt. They're not a help. But somehow the FBI worked with Ugandan authorities to do this. We prayed. We didn't pray in our authority. We didn't pray in our name. We didn't pray in our weakness and sin. We came before the Lord in humility, and he received us as though we were Jesus himself. And then he answered according to his good will. The, the new covenant says that we are regenerated. We need to be born again. There are people who say, I just need another chance. No, that's a big pile of nope for me. I don't need another chance. I, I don't need a second chance or a third chance or a tenth chance or a millionth chance. I've messed up every chance I've ever had. I need to be born again. I've had people sneer at me, uh, non-believers at work, and even some Christians, some who, who are religious at least, and say, oh, you're one of those born-agains. Yep, I'm one of those born-agains because I need to be born again. Because I need to be regenerated. I need to be converted. I don't need another chance at the old life I've already messed up. I need a new life that I can't mess up. And we have that in the, in the new covenant. And then the new covenant brings sanctification. It, it brings not just the ability to walk in the statutes of God and to observe the ordinances of God. That is such a, a shallow vision of sanctification. The word sanctify means to set apart to treat as holy. When, when we sanctify Christ as Lord in our lives and we live in his holiness, what we're doing is living in a way that sets him uh, uniquely within our lives as our Lord. The, the day that Linda and I got married, when the, the pastor asked if we would forsake all others as long as we both would live, and we said, I do, what we were saying is we agree to see the other one as holy. So Linda's holy to me. There's no other woman in my life. Linda's holy to me. She is sanctified to me. She is set apart. She is sacred to me. Well, in the new covenant, we are set apart. We are purchased with a price. We're bought with a price. We're not our own. Jesus sets us apart for his glory and for his use. People today will say that they have a deep need 
to belong, to know that they're home, to know that they matter. In Jesus Christ, you matter more than you could ever matter. You belong in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have a place that can never be taken away from you. And you, you are special to him. You are unique to him. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I love the King James here, which says you are a peculiar people. And that's, that's true too. I'm one of those peculiar people. Some are more peculiar than others. And you are these things. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, in the, in the new covenant, we're reconciled, we're brought home, we're, we, we are cleansed and forgiven and made truly holy. We are regenerated and born again and we're sanctified, we're, we're set apart and it's all been accomplished. It's all been done for us through what Jesus Christ has done. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ is given to us because of this covenant. So as, as we continue to move on in the book of Hebrews, we're going to continue to see the reality of this covenant lived out, played out, explained to us. He's going to continue to go back and forth. And for the people of the, of the time and for us today, if we can really kind of get this idea of the new covenant set in our heads, then it shouldn't be hard to see the failures of the old covenant in their light. And to understand how important it is that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even with those who would say that they're Christians, but who are still living under an old covenant mentality of, I have to, I must earn it, I must deserve it. Because everything has been given. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the grace that you have poured out upon us. We thank you that salvation is by grace through faith. We thank you that Jesus has already fully met the terms of the new covenant. We thank you that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our ability. It doesn't depend on our, uh, on our faithfulness. It depends on Jesus, and Jesus has already finished it. It's already been accomplished. And as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made co-heirs with him. We are made recipients of, of all the blessings that he has received as the blessings of the new covenant. That's really beyond our ability to grasp. That's why the scripture says, eye hasn't seen and ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what you have prepared for those who love you. And so, Lord, fill our hearts today with this gospel. Fill our hearts today with this good news. And, and help us, Lord, to, to proclaim hope and proclaim truth and life to, to, first of all, to those who are dead in their sins and who are pursuing the wrong things. And Lord, help us to also speak these words to our, our genuine brothers and sisters who are confused. They've been taught poorly or incompletely or they, they've been taught well and they just haven't heard it. There's really almost nothing sadder than somebody who's in Christ, who's living as though there's no hope for them. 
And we thank you for the love that you have for us. We, we ask that you would bless our, our members who are, are not with us today and grant them your peace and your comfort. Remind them of your love. And in Jesus' holy name and for his sake and glory we pray. Amen. We are dismissed. <laughs>